Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Makin, our Father, our King. Lord, we are right in the middle of the fall festivals, right in the middle of the festival of Sukkot, and we rejoice in the knowledge of the fact that, Father, you sent your Son to dwell with us. This is the kind of permanent dwelling that we have been reading about in the scriptures of old that we have been looking forward to as we place our hope and our trust in the promises that you've given to us as a people. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled your word. You have made good on what you've said you will do. You've sent your Son and you've uh, sent your Spirit into our hearts. And because of that, we can cry, Abba, Father. And so this year, more now than ever before, let us continue to uh, uh, remind ourselves of the uh, of the permanency of the dwelling of the Son of God who has come to live with us and come to be with us in our hearts. And uh, because of this, uh, we know that we are your children. We know that you are our Father. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us these lessons. Uh, you've preserved these truths for us in these festivals. Uh, we moved from Rosh Hashanah, and the sounding of the trumpet to the awaken, uh, awaken, O sleeper, awaken to the sound of the trumpet blast. And that prepared us, Lord, for the high holy day of Yom Kippur, uh, where we had a solemn day of, of reflection and of fasting and uh, remembering that Jesus is the atonement. He is the one who has made it possible for us to stand blameless before you, Father. And then we moved from Yom Kippur into now this festival of the booths, of tabernacles, of indwelling, of of uh, the boot, uh, the festival of um, uh, feasts. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy these fall festivals, uh, knowing that Yeshua has fulfilled these festivals. And yet, there's an aspect of these fall festivals that waits fulfillment. There's a future aspect to all of the fall festivals, and we're, look for, we're looking forward uh, by faith to those, uh, um, those times and those occurrences and when they will occur into the future, and Israel will partake in those as well. And so continue to um, give us an impetus to study and to press in and, and not to forsake your words, but to continue to remind ourselves that all of your words are relevant for us 
and that um, we have so much more that we could be uh, learning and understanding if we would just avail ourselves of, uh, of your words. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to study through the book of Galatians once again. I pray that you'll be with each and every student that has joined me tonight. I'll pray that you'll be with the students who wanted to join but were unable to make it for whatever reason. I pray that you'll bless them where they're at. Continue to help us, Lord, and to grow us up as a people group. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, Bishem Yeshua. Amen. All right, well, welcome everyone who's able to join me tonight uh, for another study in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Uh, let's date stamp our recording. This is, wow, we're into a new month already. This is uh, October the 7th, 2017, and this is week 75 as we move our way through the book of Galatians. Just want to remind everyone that um, <clears throat> that we're on a 10-week on, 2-week off schedule. That means for those of you who are following the live commentaries with me week after week, and we've been going now for, gosh, I looked at the schedule. We're, we've been going now for at least two years, possibly two years now. I think we're getting close to the two-year mark. And um, we meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a semester break for two weeks, give you a chance to get caught up on lessons that you missed or listen to audio recordings that you weren't able to, to, to attend the live study or something like that. So we're on week 75 this week. And we're plugging right along. We're making good progress as far as I can tell. Uh, we're going to be finishing up chapter four this week, and uh, that'll poise us to begin chapter five next week, which is going to be a really fun chapter. Chapter four wasn't really heavy going with a lot of technical details, but chapter five, like chapter three, I think is going to be another technical chapter. So I look forward to that. Um, also, real quick, for those of you who aren't able to make the live study each week, um, I encourage you to find me on the web at www.tetzetorah.com. That's my home teaching website, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And uh, right on the homepage, you can find a link to the Galatians commentary. Just click on that, and you'll find all of the relevant information for the live study that we meet each week by Skype from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And you can also find the written notes, which are about 200 pages long, if you want to print them out in PDF format. Uh, and you can also find uh, information about subscribing to the newsletter uh, for the Galatians commentary. This will keep you up to date with the weekly notes that I send out to the subscribers for the section that we're going to be looking at each week as well as a link to the live study uh, audio recording that I make each week. If you can't make the live study, then I record them and upload them a few days later, and you can listen to the uh, podcast, the audio recording that way. Okay, without further, further ado, for those of you who are in the live room with me, I appreciate everyone joining. I um, hope you can see the screen. You should be able to see the screen. I've got the liturgy pulled up. And uh, just remind everyone to keep your microphones muted until the end of the study. Oh, by the way, after the live study, for those of you who are in the live class with me, we like to engage in some uh, Q&A, just some chat with each other, pray with one another, or just talk about what's going on in our lives and things like that. And this is a feature that's available only to the live members. So um, come on out, join us each Saturday night. Uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Set your clock accordingly, 
and uh, join me and the other students live in the uh, Skype class with the Galatians notes. All right, without further ado, let's jump into some liturgy. Tonight we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 8, out of the uh, 1917 JPS, Jew Jewish Publication Society version again. And we're using this verse because in uh, Galatians chapter 4, right around verse, I'm going to say 27, I think, um, we're going to uh, see Paul use this passage uh, in his uh, explanation of of why the the Galatian Gentiles should avoid succumbing to the false gospel of the influencers, and he's going to use this to bolster his argument about um, covenant membership and righteousness and things like that. So we're going to see that here tonight. So let's um, quote this verse in our liturgy. We'll read the English. Uh, if you're looking at your screen tonight, those of you with me in the live study, hopefully you can see on your screen that I've got a um, I've got three columns. I created this little table for us. Uh, on the left side, we've got the English of the Jewish Publication Society version, 1917 version, over 100 years old. It's kind of neat. Um, you can find this online for free, by the way, the JPS version. And I've got the English over there, and then uh, right running down the middle, I uh, captured the Hebrew from the Masoretic text, the version that most of us are used to seeing if you've got a Hebrew Bible. And then to the far right, I uh, transliterated it myself using uh, English words, uh, English letters, so that you can try and practice following along with me, if possible. Um, not sure how good you are at reading Hebrew transliteration, but I find it kind of fun. Let's read this. We'll read the uh, English, all uh, eight verses, and then I'll go back and just read the Hebrew along with that, okay? All right, verse 1 of Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not, uh, didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of of the married wife, saith the Lord. Verse 2. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. Verse 3. For thou shalt spread abroad on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall possess the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and the reproach of thy widowhood thou shalt remember no more. Verse 5. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is thy Redeemer, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. Verse 6. For the Lord hath called thee as a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth. Can she be rejected, saith thy God? For uh, Verse 7, For small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great compassion will I gather thee. And the final Pasuk, verse 8, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have compassion on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. All right, before I jump into the uh, Hebrew, let's just jump over to Skype and see who's joined me tonight. I had a few people jump in after uh, the fact, 
Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, all right, nice to have everyone tonight. Thanks for muting your microphone so quickly. All right, uh, let's jump back over to the liturgy, and hopefully you can see my screen. Let's scroll back up to the Hebrew, and we'll start in verse 1 again. Verse 1 reads, Roni akara lo yalada pitzchi rina v'tzachali lo chala ki rabin b'nei shumema mibnei v'ula amar adonai. Verse 2, Harachivi makom ha ahol aholech v'riot mishkanoteich yatu altach sochi ha'arichi metarayich Vite dotaich chazeki. Verse 3. Kiamim us mol. Tifchosi. Vasar ech goyim yirash. Vaarim nashamot yoshivu. And verse 4. Al tiri ki lo tevoshi. Vaal tekalmi. Ki lo tach piri. Ki voshet alumaich. Tishkahi Vacherpat al Manutaich Lo Tis Kariod. Verse five. Ki vo alaich o saich Adonite Svaut Shmo Vogoalech Kadosh Israel Elohe Hol Haaretz Ikare. Verse uh, six. Ki Hiisha Atsuva Vatsuvat Ruach. Raach Adonai Veeshet No Urim Ki Tima Es Amar Elohaich. Verse 7 Brega Katun Atsavtich Uvrachamim Gdolim Akab Tsech. And the final Pasek, verse 8 Beshetsef Ketsef Histarti Fanai Rege Mimelek, I'm sorry, Mimech. Uh, yes, Mimech uv chesed olam, Richam tich amar goalech Adonai. All right, this is a good promise, a good verse, a good uh, little section that Paul has uh, reminded us of um, concerning the um, the exiles. What's neat about this particular prophecy that Paul picks up on is that as as we read it through this part of the book, Isaiah 54, which comes conveniently right after chapter 53, the most one of the most um, famous passages in the book of Isaiah, arguably so, because it so directly speaks about our Messiah, Yeshua, and his suffering for his people. But um, in Isaiah 54, God, through the prophet, promises that after this future exile that they're going to experience in the in the land of Babylon, that he's not going to leave them forsaken, like a bride forsaken, like a wife who has no husband, like a wife who has no children. In fact, this city of Jerusalem that uh, the prophet speaks about is going to actually in the future uh, come out of exile and God is going to ex uh, reveal himself to her once again. And he's going to call her back to himself, and he's going to repopulate her again. So the exile does not spell the end of all things for the city of Jerusalem and the, and the, and, uh, the people of Israel as a whole. And so this is a prophecy of a future restoration, a prophecy of hope, a prophecy of repopulation, a, uh, um, a prophecy of, of, of restoration, of 
of um, forgiveness and healing and such. And so this is what the people need to hear in the midst of these um, uh, prophecies about them uh, being punished for their sins and for their disobedience and for their idolatry and for their forsaking God and things like that. And we're going to see how Paul pulls this into his letter to the book of um, Galatians to explain to the Gentile Galatians that just like the people of old, and I, I'm I'm spelling all of this out for us during a liturgy because I actually didn't hit this verse in my um, commentary, and I didn't bring it into the commentary because it doesn't have a, a a strong disagreement between the traditional Christian group, Christian commentaries, and the traditional Messianic commentaries. But it's necessary to for us to get the background to the verses that we're going to study tonight, which is verses 28 through the end of the chapter. So Paul brings in this passage, which is uh, Galatians 4.27. He's going to quote uh, the uh, Isaiah passage out of the uh, Septuagint, the LXX uh, Greek, which is a faithful representation of the Hebrew Masoretic text. And he's going to um, bring this in, we're gonna, and we're going to see this in our liturgy here in a moment. Um, but he brings this in for his discussion among the Galatians, because he wants them to understand that... Um, just like Israel of old had not been forsaken, um, and that God had promised that one day he would uh, bring children to this forsaken city. In fact, the, the promise of the restoration, the children of that restoration would, would outnumber the children of the current forsaken uh, uh, Israel of, of old. And just like that Israel of old, the Gentile uh, believers were being brought into Israel, and in fact, someday the um, the Gentile Israelites would even outnumber the Jewish Israelites. And he even goes so far as to uh, imply, and in fact teach very directly, but use it in the form of a midrash, kind of an allegory, so it's, it's kind of implied, but it's also stated, that the... Um, uh, the future Jerusalem also looks forward to the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's there's kind of two contrasts, uh, two comparisons that are taking place uh, amidst three Jerusalems. And this gets a bit confusing unless you can wrap map your mind around the fact that there's present Jerusalem, future Jerusalem, and then heavenly Jerusalem. Does that kind of blow your mind, right? Three kind of Jerusalems that the scriptures... Uh, speak about. Present Jerusalem is the one that uh, Paul was uh, comparing with uh, in his day, and then future Jerusalem was the one that the Isaiah passage spoke about, but yet in Paul's day was already present Jerusalem, because they had already gone through the exile and come out of it and were repopulating the land by Paul's day. Um, so that's future Jerusalem, and then there's a yet, what we might consider future Jerusalem, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, that has not yet come down from above, and this is the one that we read about and say in the book of Revelation. So we got these three different Jerusalems, and Paul's going to use these three Jerusalems in this clever little uh, allegory about Sarah and Hagar uh, in his explanation about where the Gentiles find themselves in as far as covenant status. So I had to say all of that to sew uh, the two liturgies together, the Isaiah passage with the uh, Galatians passage that we're going to turn to right now. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. And um, let's scroll down to this example with Hagar and Sarah. 
And for liturgy purpose, I think we're going to go back up and start in verse 21. And let's read through the end of the chapter, these 11 verses, 21 through verse 31. And we'll look at the Greek of that as well, and then we'll jump into the commentary. Okay, so for our liturgy from the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, let's start in Galatians 4 and start in verse 21. And this is covering some of the ground that we looked at uh, in the weeks prior, meaning the reading version, but that's all right. It'll give us a larger context since we're going to finish out chapter 4 tonight. Amen? Okay. So starting in verse 21, we read, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Verse 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 27. For it is written, and now here we get our quote, this graptigar uh, in the Greek. This is where we get our quote from the Tanakh passage that we just looked at in our liturgy. This, of course, is Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. He's going to quote it and pull it into uh, Galatians 4, 27. It reads, for it is written, quote, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. End quote. All right, let's keep reading the Apostolic Scriptures. Uh, verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. End quote. Of course, we know that that quote is from the book of Genesis around, I want to say, chapter 21 or something like that. Uh, and it's a quote that uh, follows after um, the quote from earlier where he uh, uh Talks about um, the the free woman, the slave. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the uh, one is one of these women uh, had a son according to the flesh, while the other was born through promise. That's we know um, from also from Genesis chapter 21, where it records the birth of Isaac. Finally, Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and that's chapter 21. And then, if you keep reading through chapter 21 of, of Genesis, uh, where we read about Isaac and Ishmael playing together. Uh, Isaac seems to be the recipient of mocking by Ishmael, some sort of of um, of you know maybe uh, belittling or something that, that's going on, something that's inappropriate in Sarah's eyes, and so she doesn't like it, and she kind of lashes out at Abraham and says, you know, get rid of this slave boy, him and his wife, and you know, put them out of the camp, things like that. So that's where we get that quote from the book of uh, Genesis, and then Paul makes his final. Um, application in the final posic, the final verse of uh, Galatians chapter 4 here, verse 31 says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
end quote. And I think we're going to get a little mileage out of this because this being the end of the chapter, this will bring us to the end of the uh, concluding thoughts for Paul. Actually, in the Greek, most Greek versions, paragraph-wise, um, actually quote chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand stand firm, therefore, and be not yoked again to a, a, a yoke of slavery. Be not begin tied to a yoke of slavery. Um I'm not going to read that uh, verse tonight. We'll just pick up the segue next week when we sew the two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, together. But for now, let's jump over to some interlinear. I've decided to use the uh, studylight.org interlinear page again. For those of you who are in the live class, you can see the um, all of the busy uh, page in front of you. I think it's kind of busy, but it's it's really kind of convenient because it allows us to see um, the strong numbers, Strong's number, uh, right up at the very top. Like for instance, we're going to start in uh, chapter four, verse twenty-one again. Uh, with tell me those of you who uh, wish to be under the law, do not listen to the law. Um, uh, we got the Strong's number right up top, and then immediately below that, there's a transliterated Greek word in English using English uh, letters, and then immediately below that, there's the um, Greek text itself. And then below that, we've got the English translation, the word that we're used to seeing in English. And then below that, we've got what's called the morphology, which gives us the parts of speech, as well as the, the, the inflections and the mood, the voices, the, 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 the persons, the things like that. In other words, it's the grammatical section of the, of the word. And so this is kind of nice, because if I were to say click on one word, this first word, legete, um, uh, tell me, then um, we can see that this website gives us uh, some tools, Thayer's definition, word definition, uh, some transliteration. It gives us an origin word, part of speech. It's, you can see it's a verb. Uh, it gives us some Hebrew equivalent words, amar for tell me, uh, things like that, davar. And it gives me all the verses that it's found in different versions. And then if I keep scrolling down, I've got quite a lot of, um, you know, lexiconical uh, information that we could study if we wanted to really go deep and, and do like what we might call a word study, things like that. But we're not going to do that tonight. Instead, I just wanted to make you aware of this particular online tool. And that's one of the reasons why I use online tools so often is because I think they're, they should be made known to Christians and people who want to study the Bible and then uh, if they're freely available, why not um, let other people know about these resources, right? Okay. All right, let's read the liturgy, these 11 verses. We'll read these in Greek again, and um, then we'll turn to the study. Uh, starting in verse 21, the Greek reads, Legate moi hoi hupanaman te delantes enai ton naman uk akute. Verse uh, 22, Verse 24.: Hatina estin allegorumina, how tai guard asin, dua dia thekai, mia men apa oras, sina es du leen ginosa, hatis estin hagar. Verse 25. Ta de hagar sina, oras estin ente arabia, 
Sustoike de te nun Jerusalem, Jerusalem, du, uh, du leu, du, I'm sorry, du lue garmetaton technon autes. Verse 26. He de ano, Jerusalem, eluthera, e esten, he tis esten meter hemon. Verse 27. gar. For it is written, and this is our quote from the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 1, that we just read earlier in our uh, liturgy from the Tanakh. Gegraptigar euphrantheti, stera he u tiktusa hexon, kai boeson, he uk odinusa hati palata teknates, eremu malan etes ekuses tan andra. Verse 28. Hemes de Adelphoi kata itzak epangelias tekna este. And verse 29. Al huspertate ho kata sarka geneses edi oken tan kata pnuma hutos kai nun. Verse 30. Ala ti lege hegrafe ekbale ten paidiskin pai. By disken kaiton, I'm sorry, kaitan huian, uh, autes u garme cleronamese ho huias, tes paidiskes metaton huiu, tes eleutheras. And the final pasig, uh, verse 31. So then, brothers, we're not, uh, children of the slave woman, but of the free woman, dia aldelfoi uk esmen paidiskes, tekna ala tes eleutheras. All right, that'll be our Greek for tonight. And uh, we might turn back to some of the other words um, in our explanation as we look through the notes. But let's turn now to the study. Let me pull up the English for you for a moment out of the ESV uh, because I want to pull ourselves into the study and give us, the, uh, I think, uh, the mindset to appreciate what Paul is really trying to get the Galatians to understand. If I were to go back one chapter, chapter 3, for a split second... And recall from that passage that Paul is moving through this discussion with the Galatians. And keep in mind that when you're reading through the book of Galatians, that Paul's letter was read to the congregations there. It wasn't really, um, I don't think it was preached by anyone, but rather after he wrote the letter, we probably had some, um, some synagogue official or some church official, some group official, uh, gather the people together and say, hey, everyone, we've got a letter from Paul. Let's gather together and hear what he has to say. And interestingly, uh, if we take that setting, then we can um, presume that the, the people that are listening to the letter are going to be the Jewish uh, listeners, the Gentile listeners, the believers, the unbelievers. But we're also going to have within that group the... Um, what we might call the villains of the piece, right? The detractors, those people who were upsetting Paul. Remember, these were the brothers who snuck in secretly to spy out the freedom, the liberty that they had. These were people who were professing to probably be believers, people who were professing probably probably professing to be members. So these would have been uh, um, um, people that were in and amongst the congregation, but yet were, were trying to influence the other members. That's why I call them influencers. Uh, the church calls them Judaizers. Uh, commentators call them agitators. Um, 
you know, these the bad guys. Uh, these guys were probably listening to the letter too. So when they're listening to this letter, here's what they would have heard Paul explaining. And when I go back to chapter 3, if I work my way down through the chapter and just pull out some of the highlights, which I've got highlighted for you on the screen. Uh, for instance, chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice the be verbs. Notice the present tense be verbs. Uh, you are sons of Abraham, those of you who are of faith. If you are of faith, then you are sons of Abraham. Paul's going to begin moving into this theme of belonging. You are at the moment where you are covenant members. You who are Gentiles, who are considering undergoing proselyte conversion with this concomitant Torah observance for the ostensible sake of becoming a covenant member of Israel, you don't need to change anything. You're already at that point of um, completion. You have already reached the goal if indeed you are, in, uh, in fact, a genuine believer in Messiah. This is the central theme, I believe, of these two chapters, chapters 3 and chapter 4. Notwithstanding all of the um, uh, passages that Paul has to use to, um, to get the Gentile Galatians uh, to understand this uh, a present tense um, uh, um, uh, what do we say? Present tense, uh, verbs, the, 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 uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Their, their, um, current, uh, covenant membership, their current salvation, uh, status, their current status. That's the word I was looking for. It's really trying to st stress this idea of present status. You don't need to try to add something to what you already have. In other words, don't let the influencers, don't let the Judaizers uh, trick you into thinking that you have not arrived yet, that, you, that you're still lacking something. You're not lacking anything if you're in Messiah. You're complete in that sense. From the forensic perspective, from the salvific perspective, from the, from the covenant membership perspective on a lasting level, you have arrived. You are. Okay? You are of faith and you are sons of Abraham. Look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice the present tense verbs. If we keep moving down through chapter 3 and look at the verses that I've highlighted, we get to verse 26, uh, 26, 27, 28, 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, right? Not you will be. You are, if you are in Christ, then you are sons of God. Through faith, verse 27, for as many of you of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Right? You have put on Christ. Not you will put on Christ. You have put on Christ. You have arrived. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See my point? Paul is stressing the present tense, the present situation, the, the present status the current status that they are enjoying right now, if in fact they have named the name of Yeshua by faith. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So in chapter 3, that's the conclusion, that's the crescendo that he's building to. In chapter 3, and he jumped through all of these passages out of the Tanakh to bring this uh, truth, this present tense truth to their realization. And then when we turn to chapter 4, and Paul starts uh, using this analogy of the heir, the kleronomos in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, blah, blah, blah. He moves through this analogy 
Um, but then notice when he gets to uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, and because, this is kind of a semi-conclusion, and because you are sons, sound familiar? You are sons, God has sent his spirit of, of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, and verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, you're no longer a, a, a person who who is waiting to receive the inheritance, but you are a son, and if a son, then you are an heir through God. So this is beginning to make sense. We see that the the central theme of chapter 3, where you are uh, heirs according to promise, you are sons of Abraham. Now he carries this over into chapter 4. You are no longer slaves. You are, in fact, sons, and you are heirs through God. And then he moves down through chapter 4 into this example of Hagar and Sarah. And he's going to use this to finish out this section in chapter 4 that we're calling chapter 4. Of course, we know the original letter didn't have chapter breaks, but um, there's probably still the section uh, where Paul is moving through uh, the, um, the the logistics of his argument and building towards the conclusion of the crescendo. And that's what we're moving towards as we look towards the end of the chapter. Um, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, right? It's as if the Galatians think that they have not arrived yet, and yet Paul's going to keep reminding them. It's the same theme. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Present tense verbs again. Not she will be. She is our mother. She is free. And if you identify with her, which Paul's going to say that you are, that you do, then you too are free. Look at verse 28. Now you brothers are like Isaac. You are children of promise. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Present tense, present situation, present status, current status. You are, you have arrived. If you are in Messiah and if you are uh, in the Spirit, then you are. You are. You don't have to put on something or take on a change your status or change your ethnicity or go through some hoops to become something that you think you are not. You are. And then um, look at uh, finally verse thirty-one, which we're gonna we're gonna see all this in my commentary here in a moment. Verse thirty-one. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. Right. So this is the again we see it's a, a theme that Paul is building towards this idea that he wants to get the Galatians to understand that based on the scriptures that Paul brought into his argument, both in chapter three and chapter four then if the Galatians would understand by faith that because they have placed their faith in Messiah and because the Spirit has been poured out into their hearts, then they have already reached the status that they think they didn't have or or that they uh, are being told that they don't have by the uh, by the influencers. They, in fact, already are at the point of... of, of um, of maturity, they've already reached the point that they that they've been seeking. So now let's go back and into my commentary and explain this. We left off last week with verse twenty six, um, which talked about the uh, um, you know it was just before the quote from the book of Isaiah. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. And we left off last week. I pulled in this little chart. For those of you who are in my live class, this does not show up in my commentary. I created this little chart of um, a little table where this is kind of a the mindset, I believe, of what Paul is, has in mind uh, as he's explaining this to the, the Galatian Christians, the Gentiles, 
who are being told that they need to convert to Judaism, convert to legal Jewish status in order to be counted among the righteous people in Israel. And I think there's this idea that the Bible uh, uh, um, conveys to us as readers these two tables of this idea of um, <clears throat> of the reality of things. And this is, in my limited understanding, um, kind of the way that humanity is broken down along the lines of these this temporal aspect to life and this eternal aspect to life. And last week I read this chart for us. If you can look on the screen for those of you who are with me in live class, you see that I've got the, on the left side of this table uh, running vertically, and it's got uh, words like temporal, natural, flesh, old man, external, earthly, outwardly, physical. And then the corresponding or the comparison chart on the right side running vertically uses the words like eternal, spiritual, spirit, new man, internal, heavenly, inwardly, spiritual. And what I'm trying to convey for the students is that there's there's a good number of concepts that you can read about through the Bible. And I read them, I, I have a, a kind of a sampling of them on the page probably about a dozen of them or so. And these concepts include covenant membership, love for God, love for each other, you know, love for a fellow man, uh, the, the concept of salvation, uh, the idea of the life itself, food and drink, clothing, righteousness, Jewish identity, uh, identity of Israel, circumcision, Torah observance, and good works in general. And my purpose in bringing this list together, and this is of course not exhaustive, I could have, if I spent a little more time, I just threw this together in, in like 10 minutes or so before the study. Um, if I were to get exhaustive, then basically what I'm trying to convey is that all of life has these concepts that we're going to encounter as people, as Jews and Gentiles, as believers and unbelievers. And we, we, um, we have to encounter and deal with these particular ideas uh, as we read through the Bible, and we have to remind ourselves, in my opinion, that that all of these concepts really exist on two levels, and sometimes these two levels uh, contradict one another. That is to say, they compete with one another. That is, like, for instance, when we're talking about uh, 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 what should I say? When we're talking about saved and unsaved, of course, you can't be both saved and unsaved at the same time. You have your every person is is either saved or unsaved. There's no person who's simultaneously saved and unsaved. You understand what I mean? And also, for instance, um, uh, uh, old man, new man, which is really to say saved and unsaved, right? Nobody is simultaneously an old man and a new man at the same time, because of the change that takes place in your heart on a spiritual level. You are either born from above or you're not. So you can't have both at the same time, and yet. And yet, watch this, as we read through these elements, and this is going to become important as we discuss uh, these two women, these two covenants, uh, Sarah and Hagar, in our uh, Bible study night. And yet, on, on some level, on some accounts, these concepts can actually exist at the same time. And here's what I mean. We can have people who actually have covenant membership in Israel on a temporal, natural level. Um... They're born with covenant status as they are uh, born with uh, their Jewish heritage, so to say. They're born as a Jew of Jewish parents. Um, as a male, they're circumcised on the eighth day. Therefore, they're brought into the covenant with Abraham 
as has been uh, performed by the Circumcision Act. Remember, recall that from Genesis 17, God commanded Abraham to circumcise all the males of his household from there and following, from henceforth and forevermore. He said, from here on out, you are to circumcise all the baby boys on the eighth day. And this way they will carry on their selves, on their, on their, on their body, the mark of the covenant. And this way, uh, circumcision becomes a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so, all male Jewish, all male members of Israel, I, I, I shouldn't have said Jewish there, but all male members of Israel are brought into the natural uh, aspect of the covenant by way of circumcision. Therefore, it becomes for them an outward sign, a natural sign, a temporal sign, a fleshly sign, an external sign, uh, a physical sign of covenant membership. And yet, what happens once they place their faith in Jesus? Like, for instance, Paul. Paul was a Messianic Jew. Does that mean he ceased to be being a physical Jew? No, of course not. He simply also now became a spiritual Jew. He became an eternal Jew. He became a spirit man. He, his new man was birthed within him. He became an eternal, an internal covenant member. He took on heavenly covenant membership, right? He became a Jew on the in, inside, if we read through, say, Romans chapter 2 around verse 28, 29, 30, 31. He became an inward Jew at the same time. He became a spiritual Jew. And so now, for the first time, for the someone the likes of Paul, he now had covenant membership on two levels. He still retained his temporal, natural, uh, uh, external, earthly, outward, physical covenant membership, but at the same time, he now became an inward Jew at the same time. So, his love for God graduated, right? It went from being in his head to now being in his heart. His love for his fellow man likewise went from being just someone, something that was motivated by the by the power of um, human uh, will to now being um, empowered by the Spirit. Um, he became, he, if he was ever a slave and went from, and, and actually earned his salvation, you're right, if he was ever in bondage and was set free, that would be what physical salvation, you know, the kind that Israel needed to experience in the book of Isaiah when they were uh, in captive to Assyria and Babylon, right? They needed salvation, but that's just physical salvation, salvation from physical enemies. But there's also a spiritual salvation that they need to experience, the kind of salvation that we experience on a personal level. So we have this both natural salvation and spiritual salvation that we can go through. Life itself. Every person that that is alive on planet Earth experiences physical life. And yet, a good number of people are going to die physically and never raise again. They're never going to be born again. They're never going to raise to eternal life. Uh, they'll be raised to judgment, only to be sent into eternal damnation, uh, eternal punishment. But um, they'll never be raised and live with God eternally, unless they place their faith in Messiah. Then they have both physical life and spiritual life. You see what I mean? So they can have both at the same time. Same is true with food and drink, clothing, righteousness, Jewish identity, identity in Israel, circumcision. We know that circumcision can be physical as well as a circumcision of the heart. We know that Torah observance can be done on a natural level where you don't really uh, know God but you claim to know God, but you don't know God in the heart. This is you're just doing your Torah observance out of out of a duty, 
to Israel out of a, out of a duty to the Bible itself, as out of a duty to your Jewish heritage or whatnot, whatever. Uh, good works in general uh, gets pulled into that, and basically you live a good life as a natural unsaved man, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved. And yet, once you become saved, you can continue to do Torah observance, you can continue to do good works in general, and and uh, they those are good works and Torah observance that are powered by the Holy Spirit. Why am I bringing all of this into our discussion? I'm bringing all of this into our discussion because as we are studying through the book of Galatians, we need to re- keep reminding ourselves that the Galatians the, uh, themselves are being told by the influencers, the Judaizers, that they are lacking something, that they are lacking uh, some status in God's eyes in order to be counted as righteous. And yet, the part that makes this so challenging to understand is that on a natural level, there's a bit of truth to what the Galatians are actually saying. Do you understand what I mean? It is actually true on a natural level that God rewards um, Torah obedience, that he rewards good works in general, that circumcision on a natural level actually has some advantages to it, um, that God desires uh, mankind to gravitate towards and move towards uh, uh, all that bespeaks of life and good and and love and love for God and covenant membership, all of those, those all of those temporal things that I described that that fit on the left side column, those aren't bad things in and of themselves, right? Life is good, love for God is good, salvation is good. In other words, to be saved from your enemies is a good thing. Uh, to have food and drink is good, right? Who wants to starve? To be clothed is good. No one wants to go about naked and cold. Uh, to have righteousness is good, right? We all want to do the right thing and be right-standing people. Um, who wouldn't want to be a good-standing Jew? Uh, who wouldn't want to belong to the people group of Israel? Who wouldn't want to be circumcised? Who wouldn't want to, to have Torah observance uh, as your family heritage? And who wouldn't want to do good works in general? All of these things are good things that we should strive towards. And yet... That's all on the temporal level. And that's the point I'm trying to get you to understand is all of those temporal aspects of life that are in fact good things, that's not the end of life. That's not the final picture. We need to be looking at what we would say is the is the retirement package. We need to, to understand that there's more to life than meets the eye. There's more than, than just this life. There is another life waiting for us. Uh, there is an eternity waiting for us. And we've got to have an, eterni- an eternal perspective as we read through the scriptures if we are to um, graduate and matriculate and move into the next phase, to the next uh, stage, to the next level, as I as we call it. So, having said all of that, we've got these two women that Paul's describing. And, and on one level, one of the women is on the natural level, right? She was a she was one of the women that Abraham had sexual relations with. And yet one of these other women, he had, he had relations with, with her as well, but her relationship to him was on a whole nother level. And so let's talk about these two women. Paul introduces the two women in Abraham's life, Sarah and Hagar. And we know from reading Genesis chapter um, uh, 16 that... Um, Abraham has already 
considered that God is going to bless him, that God is going to give him offspring, that God is going to make his name great and bless his name and, and give him many, many, many children. And he said so in, in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham reiterates the, his faith in God in Genesis chapter 15, so much so that uh, that uh, Moshe writes of Abraham that, that Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's Genesis 15, 6. And then when we move into Genesis chapter 16, we see that Abraham and Sarah are still waiting for their promised child. There's no offspring. And Abraham's getting old. And Sarah's getting old. And there's no children. And so Abraham thinks to himself, maybe what God needs is a little bit of help. So Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. And they conspire with Hagar, which is Sarah's slave, Sarah's handmaiden, right? The Egyptian woman that... that belonged legally to Abraham, and Abraham decides to sleep with Hagar. And sure enough, from that union, a child is produced, and the child's name is Ishmael. And yet, this is not the son that God had in mind. God, nevertheless, is going to bless Ishmael, Ishmael but instead of solving the problem of missing offspring, Abraham doesn't realize that he's actually introduced complication into the matter. He's actually introduced the flesh into the equation. He has fathered a child according to natural human reproductive means. He's he's taken matters into his own hands. And so that's not what God had in mind. So later on, God visits Abraham in chapter 18 of Galatia, of Genesis and, and uh, meets Abraham. Well, I'm sorry, let me back up. He scolds Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis and and gives him the um, covenant of circumcision, has him, has him cut away the flesh from the organ of procreation, the very thing that he used to uh, bring about uh, Ishmael, right? He used that particular body part to to join with Hagar and to bring about Ishmael, right? We don't need a biology lesson here. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. And yet, God says to Abraham in chapter 17, I want you to circumcise the flesh of the tool that you, Abraham, used to bring about the child that you thought would be the child of promise. Ishmael is not the child of promise. Hagar was not the woman that this child was going to come through. It's still going to be Sarah, but as an object lesson and a very painful one, you are going to cut away the flesh because that is the mindset that you slipped into in order to bring about the child. No, Abraham, you did not do the right thing, and I'm going to give you an object lesson to remind you from here on out that it is not by the power of flesh that you bring about the promise of God. And so in chapter 17, he becomes, he becomes circumcised. In chapter 18, he's healing. God visits him in person uh, in the form of a man or in the form of an angel who turns out to be a man, who turns out to be um, God incarnate, explains to him that he's going to have a son in a year's time. And sure enough, in chapter 21, uh, Sarah gives birth to... Uh, Abraham and Sarah finally uh, get together, and Sarah gives birth to who? Isaac. And he's the promised son. And this is, of course, when uh, Sarah is well past childbearing age. And so, obviously, this is a miracle baby. He's a miracle child. And so, Paul introduces these two women as two covenants. What two covenants? We learned last week that he's comparing the two women to the two covenants that were given uh, to the people of Israel. Basically, we've got the covenant of circumcision. That's the Abrahamic covenant. 
typified by the circumcision of the flesh, but speaks more eternally of the circumcision of the heart, because it's the covenant that God made with Abraham, which speaks of the promises by faith. And Paul is going to compare and contrast this with the Mosaic covenant, which was given to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And the Abrahamic covenant typifies the covenant of the of circumcision of the heart. It's the it's the um, it's really uh, that the Abrahamic covenant is the is the um, sign of the uh, the new covenant because it's the circumcision of the heart that Abraham had uh, received way back in uh, say Genesis chapter fifteen verse six that uh, in chapter 17, physical circumcisions bespeaks of. So um, I don't want you to misunderstand where Paul's moving with this analogy. He's not contrasting, um, he's not con- not necessarily contrasting Old Covenant with New Covenant, meaning Old Testament with New Testament. He's not really saying like the traditional Christians are saying that the Old Testament is being done away with in favor of the New Testament. These women are two, new, uh, two covenants, Ishmael representing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old People of God, which is being phased out, which is, is which in some kind of dispensation fashion is being replaced by the New Testament, New Covenant Isaac person. That's not really what Paul's trying to say, although there's some kernel of truth to the idea that there is a New Covenant uh, that is... Uh, that takes place in the heart because it's a covenant that that's that that's um held together by the spirit and not held together by the flesh. So let's read um my commentary starting in verse twenty-eight, and I'll just read through the commentary. It's fairly self-explanatory, and then I'll go back and hit the highlights that I wanted you to catch. Verse twenty-eight. Now you brothers are like Isaac. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Paul now assures those of his audience who are genuine believers of their position in Christ. Recall that verse 28 is right after reading verse 27, where Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah. And in the Isaiah passage, um, Paul had this uh, um, example from Israel of old, who in the time of Isaiah was in captivity. And they were in need of a of a savior. They were in need of salvation. They were in need of physical salvation, but more importantly, they were in need of heart salvation. They were a people who was feeling that God had rejected them. And in the Isaiah passage, if you recall, God promised that the, um, the, the city of Jerusalem herself would undergo a transformation in the future. And they would move from being a city under siege, a city that was forsaken, at least from their perspective, that's how they felt. They would move from a city that was forsaken and barren, meaning a, a city that f- felt like they had lost their husband God, a, f- a city that felt like they were uh, uh, deprived of their children because they'd gone into t- captivity, right? The children of Israel had been uh, taken captive from Jerusalem and had been uh, uprooted and transplanted over to Assyria. Uh, and then in the future, they would also be up, uh, uprooted once again and, and transplanted over to the, the land of Babylon. And so in, in essence, Jerusalem as a mother was bereft of her children. Her children were robbed from her by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. Her children were taken from her, so she was desolate. She had no children. And so in this analogy... 
Paul likened the city of Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem of, of, of Isaiah's day, to, uh, um, to Sarah. Sarah, who had no children in, say, Genesis chapter 16. Sarah had no children. She was still barren. And yet she knew there was a promise, but yet she hadn't, she didn't even have one child. So Jerusalem of Isaiah 54 is likened to Sarah of Genesis chapter 16. They were both barren. They both had no children. And yet the promise to this barren wife, God said in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1, is that you who have no children, one day you will have lots of children. You have, in fact, you, the barren woman, will have more children than the one who has a husband. And so in the analogy of Isaiah 54, 1, that Paul quotes in, Gen- in uh, Galatians uh, 4, 27, basically the barren woman, which was Sarah, would eventually have more children than the one who has a wife or the one who has a, I'm sorry, the one who has a husband, which in Genesis ch- chapter 16 would be the Hagar, right? Hagar, for the, for, for the moment, Hagar was the one with the husband. She was the one who had Abraham in in sexual relations in Genesis chapter 16. So for that brief moment, Hagar had the husband and Sarah did not. That's kind of if we want to fill in the analogy. But from the Jerusalem perspective in Isaiah 54, Jerusalem, present Jerusalem had no children. She had no husband, meaning she had no husband who was God. In essence, she felt that God had forsaken her. She had no husband anymore. And yet God promises her that one day that uh, in the future, Jerusalem would be repopulated. She would have numerous children. In fact, the future Jerusalem would have more children than the present forsaken Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, after she came out of exile from both Assyria and Babylon, Jerusalem was, in fact, repopulated with more children than she had prior. So that's how we can kind of fit the prophecy together. Now, Paul uses this in his allegory here because he wants the Gentiles to understand that present Jerusalem of his day, even though she was no longer in in exile, even though she had already uh, experienced two exiles, one to Assyria and one to Babylon, and she was now back in her land, from a spiritual perspective... From a spiritual perspective, present Jerusalem was actually still in spiritual slavery. She was like Hagar. She was not like Sarah. She was supposed to be Sarah, but she wasn't. Even though she was back in her own land, spiritually speaking, since she had either ignored her Messiah or rejected him altogether in the first century, she was a spiritual Hagar. And as a spiritual Hagar, she was in slavery right? The status of the son follows the status of the mom. Because Hagar was a slave woman, the son was a slave as well. But, but, the children of the free woman, who is that? Well, the free woman would not be Hagar. This would be Sarah's, this would be uh, uh, Abraham's uh, free wife, which would be Sarah. And who was the son of Sarah? Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac. So therefore, the Gentile Galatians, uh, who were considering go- undergoing uh, this proselyte conversion package, they needed to be reminded that if they would identify with Sarah, who was the free woman, then they would also identify with the Jerusalem, who was above, who was free, 
the Jerusalem who would be coming down from above that we read about in in uh, the book of Revelation. This is also the the, the heavenly Jerusalem that uh, the book of Hebrews talks about. Uh, this is also heavenly Jerusalem that's spoken of in apocalyptic liter- literature, in the Jubilees, in some of the um, uh, the Deuterocanonicals, and for Ezra, I think. Uh, the, the, in other words, some of the extra um, Jewish literature that was, ex- it was existing in Paul's day also spoke of the heavenly Jerusalem, which was basically the ideal Jerusalem in the future. Paul now brings this heavenly Jerusalem into his letter in the book of uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting around verse 26, uh, 20, uh, 25, 26, 27. And he, get, he wants the Gentiles to understand here that if they identify with Sarah, the free woman, then they identify with the heavenly Jerusalem. And as such, they then identify with the free son, who was Isaac, the son of promise, not the slave son. And that's where we pick up our reading in chapter 4, verse 28. You, brothers, are like Isaac, children of promise. Paul assures those of his audience, I'm reading my commentary now, who are genuine believers of their position in Christ. They have all the identity they will ever need, which is what? Children of promise. This is why I say in my commentary, a conversion to Judaism via the man-made ritual conversion will add nothing to their existing righteousness via Yeshua in God's eyes, right? A conversion to Judaism is not going to add to their spiritual status. It might add to the fleshly status, if we recall that list. It'll turn them from Gentiles into Jews, but unless they also belong to the list on the right side, right, the the heavenly list, then it's not going to change anything when it comes to um, the eternal uh, identity that they're looking for. I go on to say in my commentary, this is not to say that Jewish identity is worthless. And this is why I explained what I said about that list on the left, about the, uh, the, the from an earthly perspective. It is advantageous. Far from it, I say, in fact, as Paul is going to spell out in his letter to the Romans, there is, in fact, a great advantage to being born as a Jew. Go back and read Romans 3, 1 through 9. But the sad truth, I say in my commentary, is that the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day had it wrongly believed that their covenant status as the chosen people of God was what earned them a right stand, a right to stand before God righteously. So, in essence, if I go back and look at that list, basically everything on the left, um, all the temporal, natural, flesh, old man, eternal, I'm sorry, external, earthly, outwardly, physical, the people of Israel's day were confusing those, those terms on the left with their corresponding terms on the right. And that's basically how it is today. People misunderstand righteousness today. People misunderstand good works today. People misunderstand um, uh, circumcision today. And they they get uh, covenant membership confused. Jewish people today think that the covenant membership on an earthly level is all that's necessary. They confuse earthly covenant membership with eternal covenant membership. So the, 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 uh, a good number of Jews in Paul's day were also confusing those two types of covenant memberships. I go on to say, they were trusting in the arm of the flesh, the, the Judaizers were, they're trusting in the arm of the flesh to get them into the Olam Haba, the age to come, instead of placing their trust in the sent one declared to be the true Messiah by the power of a resurrected life. And this is a sad case. 
This is why Paul can speak of the Jerusalem of his present day as identifying with Hagar, as identifying with the slave woman, as identifying with Ishmael, as identifying with Old Covenant, as identifying with um, uh, uh, the fleshly. It's because from a spiritual perspective, until one places their faith in Messiah, they are still old man. They're still dead in their trespasses and sin. And it's only the power of the Spirit that can open the eyes of an old man, turn him into a new man, and give him the ability to understand that he has now graduated from an earthly covenant membership to a heavenly covenant membership. All right, let's keep reading. Chapter 4, verse 29 in my commentary. Uh, The verse reads, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is, so also it is now. What do I say in my comments? Shaul now reveals a most painful uh, spiritual truth. Darkness will always persecute righteousness. Error will always strike out at truth. The flesh will always war against the spirit. And this is why um, we saw that uh, Ishmael in the Genesis narrative, if you go back and read Genesis 21, Ishmael persecutes Isaac, right? Ishmael is the son of according to the flesh, meaning according to the plan that Abraham and Sarah and Hagar put together, which was was not according to the spirit, according to the way God was was uh, orchestrating things. God allowed Abraham to to uh, jump into the flesh to teach him this valuable, uh, painful object lesson that it's not according to the flesh that my plans are going to come to pass. And so it's this son of the flesh who persecutes the son who was born by supernatural means. And so it is today that Paul is explaining that the earthly Jerusalem is going to persecute those members who are those who are who have membership in the heavenly Jerusalem. And this is why the uh, Gentiles need to be prepared to receive the persecution that they are going to face if they take a stand for Messiah. It's the same way today. Those of you who are listening to my commentary, I'm sure will testi- testify to the fact that if you're a believer in Messiah, you are going to suffer a measure of persecution sometime in your life at the hands of people who are unbelievers. What does the Bible say? All those who, all they who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul said it himself. And so if you haven't yet, just uh, give it some time. Live a godly life and the unrighteous of today they'll persecute you. The godless people of today, the they'll mock you. They'll, they'll ridicule you. They'll, they'll tease you. They'll uh, look down on you for, for taking a stand for, for godly things and for righteousness and for taking a stand for a biblical worldview, for, for expressing your Christian uh, worldview. The, the world will mock you for that. Um, just go ahead and speak out in a public forum that you believe in God, that you believe in Jesus, and that you believe that we should be live, living a godly life, and you'll have the people around you who are of the world. They'll mock you. They'll, they'll ridicule you. They'll look down on you. They'll call you weak, things like that. Let's keep reading my commentary. So it is with those who wish to be, who are or wish to be counted as children of the promise. They will suffer persecution at the hands of those who show themselves to be children of flesh. Yeshua explained it best. Look at this quote here from, um, uh, where is this? Uh, sorry, this is the book of John. 
John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, out of the New American Standard Bible, reads this way, quote, These are the words of, of our Master, Yeshua. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, this sounds just like what Paul is explaining to the Galatian Gentiles, right? You are not children of the slave woman. You are children of the free. Just like Yeshua said, you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Just like Paul's explaining to the Gentiles. The Judaizers actually don't have your best interest at heart. They're going to hate you if you if you reject their... Um, their uh, conversion package, if you reject their gospel of circumcision, if you reject their gospel of works righteousness, they're going to despise you for it, and they're going to look down on you, and in fact, they're going to reject any claims of covenant membership in Israel unless you become physically identifiable Jews. They're going to hate you for it. Verse 20 of John goes on to say, this is Yeshua speaking, Remember, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me, which is, of course, uh, God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but... Now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. This is the one who sent Yeshua. If I had not done anything among if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, quote, they hated me without a cause. End quote. So we see it well. Yeshua is explaining uh, to his followers, which of course is us, uh, which of course is Paul, which of course is the Galatian Gentiles, the Christians. Um, if they hated you, they're going. I'm sorry. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so, don't seek for their acceptance. Uh, they're not going to accept you. This is a, a very painful lesson for us today. Those of us who are in the Messianic movement, those of us who are following after Hebraic lifestyle, who wish that our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters who don't believe in Jesus, we wish that they would accept us more. They, we wish that they would they, they would receive us into their synagogues. But uh, as we're going to see from another quote from the book of John, they're not going to receive us into their synagogues. They didn't do it in Yeshua's day. They didn't do it in Paul's day. And they are not going to do it today. As soon as they find out that you believe in Jesus, they're going to ask you to leave. Um most likely they're going to ask you to leave. Let's let's see what uh, I have to say in my commentary. Top of page 146. We're almost done. Let me let me pause for a moment. Let's see how much left I have in the commentary and see if I want to keep reading or if I want to save this till next week. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, I think I can finish this. It's not too much longer. Uh, probably 10 minutes or so. Top of page 146. Since the children of the promise in verse 28 identify intimately with the ultimate son born by the power of the Spirit, as opposed to merely being identified as legally recognized Jews with no true saving faith in Yeshua, then they too, Paul goes on to explain to them, they too can expect to be treated unfairly since uh, Paul explains in the book of Ephesians that, quote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's Ephesians 6.12 from the KJV. I go on to say then, we see then from this admission by Paul that the earliest persecution against genuine Christians came not from the Roman establishment, but actually from the Jewish synagogues bent on expelling those from the way from their midst. One only need read the book of Acts to see this played out in chapter after chapter and in perfect fulfillment of Yeshua's prediction in John 16, 1-4. Let's read this quote. Yeshua said, These things have I spoken to you so that you may not be, so that you may be kept from stumbling. Again, speaking to disciples, Yeshua said, speaking of the unbelieving Jews of that day and of the, of the days to come, they, these unbelieving Jews, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think, kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. End quote. So this John 16, 1-4, again, Yeshua warning us as true believers, both Jew and Gentile, that we are going to be receiving persecution because we, like Isaac, identify with children of the promise. We identify as uh, genuine and lasting covenant members. And therefore, it's, we're going to be um, spurning the jealousy of those who think they are genuine and lasting covenant members, but in reality, only have limited covenant membership according to the flesh. This would be sons of Isaac. I'm sorry, sons of, of, of Ishmael. All right, let's keep reading my commentary. and We're almost done. Indeed, the final truth of the matter is that in Paul's theology, and this is the message that he's really trying to get the Galatian Gentiles to understand, a conversion to Judaism, Judaism can never change the heart of an individual the way faith in Yeshua can. And those seeking to be, quote, under the law, end quote, recall Galatians 4.21 from above, these people will eventually end up identifying with Hagar, of this allegory if they're not careful. If they do not place their faith in Yeshua, then all they're going to do is change from change their status from Gentile to Jewish. But they will not move into the Isaac category. They'll simply join the Hagar category. And instead of their mother being Sarah, their mother will in fact be Hagar. And uh, that's going to be a disappointment. So, let's keep reading my commentary. Uh, they will eventually end up identifying with Hagar of this allegory if they are not careful. Instead of creating community among Jews and Gentiles, they will actually end up siding with those who destroy community by condoning rejection of Gentiles and persecution of the children of the promise. Read, recall verse 28 from above. In a Jewish-only Israel, the way the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day were presently doing. You understand what I mean there? The Judaisms of Paul's day, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, were increasingly adopting a Jewish-only policy when it came to uh, righteousness in Israel, when it came to um, keeping and following after Torah, when it came to... Um, uh, being recognized among uh, the, those 
uh, righteous individuals and covenant members in Israel. Uh, the Judaisms of Paul's day were more and more adopting a Jewish-only uh, stance, meaning they were rejecting, eventually they would go on to reject even the God-fearers of their day. They wouldn't even allow them to be buried along with uh, those who had taken a legal Jewish status. And so more and more it became a Jewish-only uh, club, a Jewish-only membership. Um, and that's why if you weren't born Jewish, you had to convert to Judaism, go through the steps necessary. And if you were male, you had to take on physical circumcision and be declared legally Jewish. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 30, uh, which uh, is the second to last verse in the chapter. Uh, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. All right, so Paul returns to his analogy directly. Uh, about Sarah and Hagar. And, of course, when we get through, uh, when we start reading through Genesis chapter 21, we're going to see that these are the words of Sarah that are being spoken, cast out the slave woman. But Paul quotes them in an effort to get the Gentiles to understand that if they do not hold fast to their profession of faith in Messiah, instead of identifying with Isaac like they think they are, they're being duped, Right, they're actually going to identify with Hagar and the son Ishmael, and what is the outcome of Hagar and her son? Does she inherit? Does she get to remain in the camp with Father Abraham? Does she become? Uh, does she go on to uh, uh, inherit the promises? Not so. What does the Scripture say? Paul quotes, "Cast out the slave woman and her son." For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit, right? These were the promises that God had given to Abraham and Sarah, starting way back in Genesis 12 and working our way through the entire Genesis narrative on, as a whole, from Genesis, say, 12 through, say, Genesis 22, if you look at them as a whole. The entire kind of story of Abraham with Abraham and uh, Isaac, with, with uh, uh, the promise of Isaac way back uh, in Genesis 12, to the death of Isaac in Genesis 22. Um, as I read through my comments, we can see Paul saying that uh, the Gentiles need to stay the course. They have made a profession in Yeshua. They have made an identification with Isaac. They need to stay the course if they want to receive the promise. Through making a choice, I say in my comments, through making a choice to stand and be persecuted along with Yeshua, I'm sorry, though making a stand to Though making a choice to stand and be persecuted along with Yeshua might result in earthly persecution and expulsion from the established synagogues of their day, Paul would nevertheless urge his Gentile readers to reject man-made identity markers in favor of being received into the genuine inheritance offered only to those who identify with the free woman, which of course is Sarah, and which is also the heavenly Jerusalem. All right, that's the free woman. In the Genesis narrative, narrative to which Paul is taking his analogy, recall that Hagar was eventually cast out of Abraham's community along with her son Ishmael. Thus, even though the son of promise, Isaac, was the object of mocking according to the text and according to Jewish Midrash and according to the analogy that Paul is painting, even though uh, Isaac is the one who's receiving the mocking, in the end, in the end, watch this, 
God vindicated Isaac's true status as recipient of Father Abraham's inheritance by confirming it once again to Abraham. Look at this. This is wonderful. And this, I think, is why Paul uh, quotes this particular passage out of Genesis, because he wants the Gentiles to understand that you're going through something. I'm, I'm there with you, you my Gentile readers. I understand that 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 these influencers are basically pushing you into the crucible they're saying look if you guys want to have all that there is to be had you've got to come over to our side and if not you're going to be kicked out of the synagogues you're going to be rejected you're not going to receive any of the promises you're not going to be able to claim the torah as your own in a word you're going to be outside of covenant membership so if you want to have it all, if you want to be part of our group, you've got to come over to our side and you've got to go through this doorway known as a Jewish conversion. Paul's saying, no, 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 don't go through that. Uh, yes, you're going to be persecuted, but look what happens in the end. What's the end of the story? Read the end of the passage. What happens to the Isaac of the passage? And so let's read Genesis 21, verse 9 to 12, because it's relevant for our study here. Quote, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Right? Ishmael's laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And look at this. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son but, look at God's part, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. In other words, don't worry about Ishmael and Hagar. Don't worry about them. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells. Go ahead and put them out. Uh, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, end quote. And so God reiterates the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah, a promise that the covenant line, the covenant blessings are going to come through Isaac. Go ahead and do what Sarah says. Go ahead and put uh, Hagar and Ishmael out. Go ahead and, go ahead and do that. I'm going to bless them anyway because they're physical sons. They're your sons, and I'm going to bless them because of my love for you, Abraham. Don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. I know you're concerned about the boy and his mother, but don't worry about them. Your promise that I made to you is going to come, it's going to be established. I'm still going to work it through Isaac. Don't worry, okay? I'm I'm I haven't left. I haven't uh, forgotten about you. So this is a wonderful promise and this was not lost on Paul, right? He uh even though he doesn't quote the entire passage, we know that whenever he lifts a single verse or so out of the Tanakh, that it is best for uh, we as 21st century Bible students to go back and read the whole passage so that we can uh, understand that the readers probably did the same thing. They probably went back and read the entire passage and said, wow, this is wonderful. If we continue to identify with Isaac through our faith in Yeshua, even though we remain as Gentiles, even though we're going to suffer persecution, just like Isaac suffered persecution, according to the narrative, if by faith we uh, hold fast to Yeshua, just like our teacher Paul is telling us, this is the Gentiles speaking in Paul's day, then we, like Isaac, will continue to be 
the the covenant son just because that's what God said is going to happen. And in fact, I uh, Ishmael and his mother are the ones that are going to be put out of the covenant. They're going to be put out of the camp, and we are the ones who are going to receive the inheritance. So I go on to say in my commentary. Interestingly enough. Paul's quote in Galatians about getting rid of the slave woman, etc., comes not from God's mouth, as one would expect it, if they only read Paul and did not cross-reference Genesis, right? If someone were just reading uh, Galatians here and didn't cross-reference it with the Tanakh. Instead, Sarah is actually the one who uttered these words, and probably not in kindness, right? She's she's lashing out at Hagar, she's lashing out at Ishmael uh, because of the mocking and the teasing and 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 some of the uh, pro- possibly even um, inappropriate uh, sexual uh, 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 behavior that was taking place in the Genesis passage. Go back and read some of the um, commentaries to the uh, Genesis 21 passage there and see what I mean about the, uh, the inappropriate sexual references. Uh, but I go on to say in my commentary, to be sure, Abraham was displeased at the sudden and obviously emotional outburst from his wife. Right, you know, it says Abraham was displeased at this uh, thing. It was displeasing to him. Yet, Paul picks up on the prophetic truth of Sarah's spiteful proclamation, and Paul turns it into a promise about inheritance for his midrash on these two women, and uses it as a nice conclusion to this section. Right, and with that, let's turn to the final verse and uh, see now how that Paul brings his midrash to a conclusion, his application of these two women of Sarah and Hagar to a conclusion, his application of the midrash with the two men, uh, the two children, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, to a conclusion, his comparison of the earthly Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, the future Jerusalem, and the heavenly Jerusalem. He brings that to a conclusion, and he also brings his uh, conclusion about the 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 sonship and the heirship and the 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 uh, what is the, the of the previous chapter and the Kleronomos of this particular chapter. He brings all of this to a conclusion once again with this final verse, verse thirty one of chapter four. So brothers, we notice he jumps into first person again. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, which is really significant. I didn't bring this out in my commentary, but. He brings himself into this application by using the first person we to help the Gentiles understand that it's not just you Gentiles as Gentiles that are sons, that are children of the of the slave woman and your children of the promise, but it is we who are also Jews, such as myself. This would be Paul's firsthand testimony. We Jews who also name the name of Messiah are also children not of the slave but of the free so in other words if i could fill in the kind of a paraphrase so brothers we jews and gentiles are not children of the slave but of the free woman and of course this runs counter to the message of the influencers slash judaizers slash agitators right the legalists those who were teaching the the law gospel those who were teaching the the, the circumcision gospel those who were teaching the 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 the, the, uh, the gospel of ethnicity and and uh, works uh, works righteousness the works of the law the gospel that taught that the torah was for jews only the to- the law that taught that unless you were legally counted as jewish then god would not recognize you as righteous and uh, paul's going to say no 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 that's not true 
you can be recognized as righteous, whether you're Jew or Gentile, as long as your faith is is rooted securely in Yeshua himself. So that's why Paul would say, so brothers, we, we Jews and Gentiles, are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Look at my comments. They're very short and to the point. Bringing his allegory to a close by restating what he said in verse 28 above, that if we choose to identify with Shua, the ultimate son of promise, the quintessential offspring of Abraham, I might add, instead of seeking to set up our own way of righteousness by purchasing a man-made Jewish identity via the proselyte conversion ceremony, then we Gentiles, like Isaac of the Genesis narrative, we Gentiles will be counted as a true child of the free woman, which of course corresponds to the heavenly Jerusalem of his previous analogy, uh, will be counted as a true child of the free woman, a genuine child of Father Abraham, and genuine heirs according to the Spirit. And with that, I can bring my commentary uh, to chapter 4 to a close, and we're poised to turn to chapter 5. And Paul's going to unleash his, the, the big guns once again. Um, he's he's upset again. He's going to, uh, I, I think probably in real life, he, he probably put the pen down and stopped writing for the day because he ends on kind of a very, uh, a very gentle tone, a very um, motherly tone, a speak, you know, a, a fatherly tone, whatever you want to call it, a, a parental tone, speaking to his children, and he probably put the pen down and stopped writing for that day, and you know, probably went into prayer and 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 finished his day and did whatever he's going to do. But then he probably woke up the next day and he and he just got to thinking again about how these brothers snuck in, these false brethren, these pseudo. Uh, brothers snuck into his congregation, snuck into the flock like 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 wolves in sheep's clothing, and started sowing uh, this poisonous seed of of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism and works righteousness. And he thought it that got him riled again about the, the rejection of the Gentiles. That 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 got him heated again. And he picked up his pen and starts writing chapter what we what we're going to read is chapter five with. With I, Paul, tell you that if you receive circumcision, Christ is of none effect. Right? He doesn't sound very parent, parental again, there. Right? Doesn't sound very motherly there. He's 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 heated again, just like he was in chapter three. You foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Right? So we're going to turn to that next week. But for now, let's let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live class, uh, if you'd like to entertain some um, after chat, uh, after uh, uh, teaching chat, well then we'll open up the the microphone for a few minutes and see what you've got to say, okay? But let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us together to study the book of Galatians. I pray that you'll continue to open the eyes of our heart, give us ears to hear, enlarge the, our, our, our mental capacity so that we can uh, begin to understand these truths and begin to apply them in a deeper and more personal and meaningful way in our lives. Help us, Lord, to continue to press into your words uh, give us a heart to seek to be pleasing to you, a heart that wants to do right, a heart that seeks to be observant to your words, a heart that uh, wants to be filled with the Spirit and to put uh, on the words of Messiah uh, to um, 
to have the mind of Messiah, to um, uh, have our minds be renewed in righteousness. Uh, let the water of the word wash over us and continue to cleanse us and to, to forgive us and to help us to know who we are in Messiah. We are not children of the flesh. That is, if we hold to the head whose name is Yeshua, we are not uh, children of the slave woman. We do not identify with Hagar. We do not identify with the barren Jerusalem of Isaiah chapter 54. In fact, Lord, we like the Jerusalem of who has been renewed. We like the heavenly Jerusalem who is coming down from the heavenly abode. We identify with that Jerusalem, with Sarah, our mother. Lord, we identify with Isaac, the son of promise. We have decided to hold fast to Yeshua. He is the head of the body. He is the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And it is it is in his promises that uh, our covenant status is made secure, not by our works righteousness, not by our ethnicity, not by good works that we can do, not by um, uh, uh, any commandment keeping or, or any such thing. Uh, but uh, what does it say? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So thank you, Lord, that our righteousness is found not on our own, but in Messiah. For he is, in fact, the one, uh, uh, the, the perfect righteous one. And uh, we'll place our trust in him, and we'll continue to place our trust in him, and be filled with the Spirit. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>